The following podcast was produced by Latter-day Radio, originally broadcast on KLO in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Latter-day Radio here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk, and we're back for a whole new topic today. We've decided to talk about our favorite subject, which is missionary work. I'm certain that we all have our favorite subjects, but why would missionary work be at the center of things that we like the best in the church? And simply because if it wasn't for missionary work, none of us would be here. We wouldn't be talking about this. As I have mentioned in earlier segments, my wife and I returned in October of 2016 from a mission to the Frankfurt German Mission. And one thing that I loved was our Wednesday district meetings with our district in Mainz, Germany. And one thing that they did to start every meeting, they would recite the fourth section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And those of you who have served know that that was one of the first things you had to do when you, when you went to the mission home. You had to memorize it, didn't you, Martin? Yes, absolutely. You memorized in Japanese? <laughs> Both in English and in Japanese. Do you still know your Japanese version of that? Oh, I do not. That's okay, been a well, long time ago. We had to do it in German every Wednesday, and I had to uh, sneak a look to uh, keep up with our young missionaries. It reminds me of the favorite quote that I've found, and you've all heard probably, this prophecy that the prophet Joseph Smith gave and it's, it's still lofty, it's, it's still inspiring, but when we put it in context, it's even more outrageous. Martin's got a good take on that. And this is, uh, I don't know the exact, exact date of this, but this is what the prophet Joseph Smith said about the gospel being spread. He said, the standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, but the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear till the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done." Now, Martin, you said earlier this concept of this worldwide movement sounded somewhat outrageous, and, and you gave us and you gave me an example from a TV show. <laughs> well, I'm 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 glad you like that, um, and I'm going to give that TV show analogy. But I, I wanted first to step back for just a minute and mention that. I know listening are Latter-day Saints. I hope I can give you a new uh, perspective on, on Section 4. And for those who are listening who are Catholics or, you know, Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, other Protestant denominations, or maybe you're an agnostic or an atheist, what I'm about to say I think will at least give you a little bit of insight into quite an incredible... Uh, stepping off point at the very beginning of the Church of Jesus Christ of, of Latter-day Saints. And our context here is actually even before the church was organized on April 6th of 1830. Section 4 of the Doctrine and Covenants that Greg mentioned 
was actually received in February of 1829. Talks about a marvelous work is about to come forth amongst the children of men, and it calls people to serve, says the field is white, all ready to harvest, and this was in addition to prior section three, which was given during the same context about the works of God not being frustrated. And in the context of Joseph Smith's statement that there would be a restoration and that it would go forth and fill the whole earth like the stone mentioned in, in the book of Daniel. Now, <laughs> today those claims may sound a, a little audacious, even today, but if you step back into when they were originally made in 1829, here you have Joseph Smith, who is 23 years old, little formal education. He hasn't finished the Book of Mormon yet, hasn't even been published. He has, as believers, that he has seen visions and received revelations from God, family members, and a few others, and that's it. And in that context, he's making claims about an amazing, marvelous work that's going to proceed forth and be heard and fulfilled and fill the, the, entire, the entire earth. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be a Mormon, but it does mean that the uh, description of the restored gospel is going to be heard everywhere. And, and even those who, who, who don't like the church would say, wow, the, the Mormons are well on the way to doing that. They're not in every country in a formal way, in the Middle East, in India, in, in China, and in some other places um, like that. But in many places, they are. And there's a great and an amazing work that's happened. And... One of the big points to make here is the context. Many people listening will have heard this Shark Tank show. It, it's a show where people come on and, and try to pitch a new business idea that they have. Something that they think is just going to go really, really big. And there are a number of business entrepreneurs who are in a position to invest, who listen and kind of give thumbs up or thumbs down or reasons why this could succeed and they want to be involved or, or why some don't. Well, imagine if you were back there in February of 1829 and you were observing and there were sort of three religious experts, kind of like the people in the shark tank who, who are the possible investors. And they were listening to some 23-year-old kid who didn't have any significant religious training and background say, I've got this new religion. I've got this restored gospel that I want to mention. 
And it's amazing. And God has told me to say that it is going to roll forth throughout the entire earth. What would be the reaction of those present? I'll tell you, I think he would have just been laughed and ridiculed. Nobody would have believed it. Even those who who thought, gee, nice kid, but totally off his rocker. Well, in fact, that's what happened in his in his neighborhood, if you remember the Methodist minister that he had a ride with. And in just in case you just joined us, this is Latter-day Radio here on 1430 World Class Talk. I'm Greg Gerard, and Martin Tanner and I are talking about missionary work and how it got started and how it's how the church is beginning to fulfill that promise of of, of filling the earth. It's an it's a remarkable event or or growth or progression, however you would like to describe it. And it did come from this unlikely, very unlikely beginning. If if some learned minister of, of the time had made these kinds of pronouncements, people even then would have been skeptical. It is very difficult to become the leader of a new religious movement and have that religious movement be around for any length of time at all. Um, I once did uh, an article, uh, wrote a short article for the Encyclopedia of Mormonism about all the divergent groups, those who had, which had split off from the church. And none of them have significantly prospered at all. What used to be the uh, RLDS Church and is now the Community of Christ has, has significantly fewer than a million members. It, it's just, it's the only one of any size at all, and even that one has, has not done particularly well. At the, in the 1800s, in the 19th century, there were 29 new religious denominations and the only one of any significant size remaining today is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it comes from perhaps the most unlikely beginnings. One last pronouncement or two um, as we wrap up this segment. Joseph Smith mentioned, and this is part of section three of the Doctrine and Covenants now, about this restoration of principles, and we'll talk a little bit more about what was restored, uh, the claims of the LDS Church, during another segment. But here's what he said, quote, the works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. And I'll skip down a little bit. Remember, remember that it is not the work of God that is frustrated, but the work of man. For although a man may have many revelations and have power to do many works, yet if he boasts in his own strength and sets it not, counsels of God and follows after the dictates of his own desires, he must fall. And then it it goes on and talks about how Uh, He, Joseph Smith, needs to redouble his efforts and focus 
in a better way. And so from self-criticism in a revelation and statements about the marvelous work and a wonder that's supposed to come forth, we have the beginnings, the kernels of this amazing restoration. That's just the beginning of what we want to talk about today, so we hope you stay tuned. I am still reminded by that one quote that uh, Joseph gives about himself, that his name would be known for good and evil throughout the world. And that is certainly true. This is Latter-day Radio on 1430 World Class Talk. We'll be back after these announcements. More faith-affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around. Welcome back to Latter-day Radio here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. I'm Greg Gerard, and with me here is our host and expert on all things Mormon, Martin Tanner. And we've been discussing the rolling forth of the gospel as prophesied by a 23-year-old Joseph Smith early in 1829. He hadn't yet finished translating the Book of Mormon. Then he receives a divine chastisement in section 3 of the Doctrine and Covenants due to the loss of the 116 pages, and then receives promises from the Lord in the next few sections about what is going to take place. The Lord tells him, The works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. In this the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness, clear as the moon, and fair as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. This whole coming forth of the Book of Mormon, all that comes with it, it's incredible, isn't it, Martin? It really is a marvelous work and a wonder. Good to be here again with you, Greg. The, the question that comes up often for both members of other churches and, and members of the LDS church is, gosh, exactly what was restored. Because Catholics, Protestants, uh, Orthodox Church would all say, well, we believe in the Bible. Uh, we believe in God and Jesus. Uh, what, what was there to be restored? Why, why would we need a restoration? And that's one of the key reasons that many don't really take the LDS Church seriously, or at least don't see a, a reason for it, maybe a better way to say it. Those who are Latter-day Saints often just sort of take for granted their beliefs and either don't know about the differences or don't want to emphasize those differences that Latter-day Saints have with other churches because... After all, we like to fit in. That leads to the issue of if, if we fit in with the rest of Christianity, why is there a need for a restoration? What was restored? What do Latter-day Saints believe was lost? So, so there's the short little description of, of the crux of, of the matter, of the topic. What is the restoration? Well, the short answer is that all of the major concepts within Christianity, according to Latter-day Saints, needed some kind of restoration. Certainly, Latter-day Saints believe in God the Father just the way every other Christian denomination does. But most other denominations, with, with a very few small 
exceptions, uh, generally from a long time ago, believe that God the Father is a spirit only. He, he does not have a physical body. He's not a divine man or uh, a person in, in the physical sense. He's, he's a spirit. As they say, without body, parts, or passions. That's what uh, the Nicene Creed says about uh, God's nature. And so as we look at this issue, let's take a, just a short little quick look at what the Bible says and why Latter-day Saints might actually have a leg to stand on when they believe God is a divine man, a divine person. The first one comes from the words of Jesus himself as recorded in the New Testament, and that is that he referred to his father as Abba. We find that in several different places. Abba is a Jewish word that literally means daddy. And if you were to go to Israel today, you would hear little kids as, as their father comes home from work say, Abba, Abba, daddy, daddy, you're, you're home, you're home. Uh, this is a description of a man, of a person. And to Jesus, God the Father was his daddy in the same sense that other Jewish children had a daddy that would come home from work. If you don't like just that one single example from the Bible, and you would like others, well, there are a number of them. One of the ones that's often overlooked is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, which says it this way, uh, and this is the King James Version. It says, God, who, and, and I'll sort of paraphrase some of this, God, who at, at times past talked to us through his prophets, in these days speaks to us by his Son, who is the brightness of he, God's glory, and is the express image of he, meaning God's purpose paraphrased, it's Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says, God has spoken to us at this time during his son, who has the same brightness and glory that God the Father does, as, and is in the express image of God's person. Not just kind of like him, but the express image. And if, if you don't like that translation, here's what the contemporary English version says. Long ago and in many ways, God's prophets spoke his message to our ancestors, but now God sent his son to bring us the message. God created the universe by his son, and everything will someday belong to the son. And here's the key part. God's son has all the brightness of God's own glory and is like him in every way. Just in case you joined us recently. This is Latter-day Radio here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. I'm Greg Gerard and Martin continue with our discussion of what the marvelous work and the wonder was. Sure, be happy to do that. Uh, the, our, our first part is what was lost? Well, the concept of God. 
Why? Because it's generally believed today that God is just a spirit, and yet Jesus described his father, God the Father, as his daddy, just the way that children would today. Second of all, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, says that Jesus looks exactly like his father. Jesus is a man. His father would hence be a man. And here's another comment, a direct quote of Jesus. Mark 10, 18, today, has Jesus saying, quote, there is none good but one, and that is God, close quote. Well, this is an example of how the Bible's kind of been tampered with. <laughs> Mistranslated, as they say. Sure. Tampered with, messed up, watered down, whatever you want to say. The King James Bible of 1611, when it was first translated, Mark chapter 10, verse 18, says, this is Jesus speaking, quote, there is no man good but one, and that is God, close quote. You think, well, oh, the King James Bible translators messed up. Well, the Bishop's Bible of 1568 says the same thing. There is no man good but one, which is God. The Geneva Bible, earlier than that, the translators of that great Bible said, there is no man good but one, which is God. The great Bible says the same thing. Tyndale's Bible says the same thing. Wycliffe's Bible says the same thing. There is no man good but God himself. This is the translation of all the great Bibles until recently, and it worked for everybody because until then, God was considered a divine man. Another interesting change or lost concept comes from the idea that the Trinitarian concept is the accurate one. The Trinitarian concept is that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate persons, but of one undivided substance. That is something that was concocted at the Council of Nicaea. Like a camel. It was created by a committee. <laughs> That's right. With all the best intentions, they wanted to stop the Christian church from fragmenting, and, and they succeeded in that with the t uh, for the time being. But people at the time were concerned because it was unbiblical. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are of one undivided substance. It is just not there. Other changes that we believe have been restored. The idea of creation ex nihilo out of nothing. That's not quite what the Bible says. Uh, the contemporary English version, for example, clarifies that and has a better translation. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was barren and with no form of life, and it was covered with darkness. I mean, that says the earth was already in existence when God began to create it as it is now. God created from pre-existing matter. Was there a pre-existence? That's something that has been lost from much of Christianity and has been re restored to earth. Is Jesus the God of the Old Testament? Uh, 
Latter-day Saints believe that. And in the earliest manuscripts of Jude 5 from the New Testament, we read this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus, for the earliest Christians, was the God of the Old Testament. Jesus was Jehovah. Jesus was Jehovah. So the point is here that there were many, many changes in the Bible and concepts that were lost, whether part of the Bible or not. And those are the things that we believe have been restored. Some of these great lost truths, and we've just scratched the surface with that. These are the concepts that make up the restored gospel that Joseph Smith described as as the gospel that will roll forth and cover the entire earth. Greg, talk about our next segment and what we're going to do there. Well, we're coming to an end here, but we want to continue talking about a marvelous work and a wonder and how the gospel has spread to, to all the earth through miraculous ways, just as Joseph Smith predicted. This is Latter-day Radio here on 1430 World Class Talk. We'll be back after these messages. This faith-affirming podcast is a production of Latter-day Radio for the enlightenment and illumination of its audience. More faith-affirming podcast content on its way. Stay with us. Welcome back to Latter-day Radio here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. I'm Greg Gerard and Martin Tanner is with me. And we're continuing an important discussion, Martin. Do you want to fill people in as to what we've done so far? Be happy to do that. Today we're talking about missionary work in the LDS Church and about the concept that the gospel will fill the earth. This is something that was prophesied or predicted, however you'd like to describe it, in sections three and four of the Doctrine and Covenants, which at the time they were given in 1828 sounded like just outrageous predictions or prophecies because Joseph Smith had not completed the Book of Mormon. There was no church that had been founded and there were only a small group of believers. His family and a few friends. That's right. And if you were to get any 23-year-old kid, which was, to call it like it was, uh, who Joseph Smith was at the time, if any 23-year-old kid came up to you and said, I've got this new movement, God's behind it, and it's going to fill the whole earth, what would the odds be of that actually happening following in the prediction you would probably put them at a million to one at at best or or 16 million to one there you go what whatever the number was it had to be incredibly small as as we've already mentioned briefly there were 29 denominations new denominations of christianity that were founded in the 1800s, along with Mormonism, the, the LDS faith. 
and the only one that has really to any great degree prospered and flourished is really the Latter-day Saint Church. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, the Seventh-day Adventists and a few others have, have certainly some degree of success, but the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has really grown in remarkable ways. There's a, a great quote that Brigham Young made, and after, after I read that, Greg, I'm going to invite you to talk a little bit about your experience with this concept as, as a missionary, because I think it's great. You told me this earlier, and I, I think all our listeners would really enjoy hearing it. So here's Brigham Young's quote about the rolling forth of the restored gospel. Of course, in Brigham Young's typical colorful language. Vernacular. <laughs> That's right. Quote, every time you kick Mormonism, you kick it upstairs. You never kick it downstairs. The Lord Almighty so orders it. Every time they persecute and try to overcome this people, they elevate us, weaken their own hands, and strengthen the hands and arms of this people. And every time they undertake to lessen our number, they increase it. And when they try to destroy the faith and virtue of this people, the Lord strengthens the feeble knees and confirms the wavering in faith and power in God in light and intelligence. Righteousness and power with God increase in this people in proportion as the devil struggles to destroy it. Must frustrate him. <laughs> <laughs> you would think. Um, close quote. So th the point here is that the more people fight against the church and try to overcome it, the better it does, according to Brigham Young. And, and I have some more information about that later, but Greg, you have a, a great experience I'd like you to share with our listeners. Well, I was called to serve in the, in the West German mission in November of 1964. I went into the what was then the language training mission, spent three months there, learned German, tried to do my best, and then landed in Germany of March of 1965 and loved it. And then about a year later, I was teaching a young Italian brother and sister in Frankfurt, Germany, and they were baptized. They joined a Sunday school class of three other Italians that we taught in, uh, in Frankfurt. Then uh, later that summer of 1966, I was called to work exclusively with Italians inside of the uh, West German mission and which actually was the case with many other German missionaries uh, who were teaching Italians throughout that country. Then in August of 1966, a wonderful thing happened. A new mission president, John Duns, was called to open up the Italian mission. Previous to that, it had been part of the, uh, part of the Swiss mission. There had been a handful of missionaries, who so were about 90 at the time. They were sending another 90 to join the 90 that were already there. They needed people who knew, the who knew the language and knew the gospel. I had learned a couple of discussions in Italian. And so I was sent uh, with uh, a companion to open up the city of Bari, which is down on the south on the hill across the Adriatic from Albania. 
We arrived, there were no members, there was no branch house, there was not uh, anyone that even knew who Mormons were within uh, hundreds of miles probably, and we just started tracting and knocking on doors. And later that fall, in November of that year, the uh, uh, mission was to be uh, dedicated by President Benson. And as he came to dedicate it in Florence, which where their mission home was, uh, a storm followed uh, him and a, a lot of flooding took place in northern Italy. And they eventually had to go north and dedicated the land again in the same place that Lorenzo Snow did uh, about 110 years earlier. The point is, there were no members there at all in, in body. Then last year, my wife and I served in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, and we met a, a family from Bari, Italy, who, was, who uh, were in the ward. The, the father had recently been released as a member of the Bari State Presidency, and he had his son lived there. <clears throat> what is interesting is what, when 52 years ago there were no members, there is now a stake in that country. And the way that that happened was the Lord allowed people from Italy to move to Germany to be taught the gospel. They moved back. The missionaries came and the, and the country uh, received uh, the blessings of this marvelous work and a wonder. And just in case you joined us, this is Latter-day Radio here on World Class Talk, 1430 KLO. Martin how do you think the gospel has been so successful, rolling forth as it has, fulfilling Joseph Smith's prophecy? I have thought about that um, many, many times over the last um, three or four decades. And the only answer that I can come to is that God's behind the work because there is no other explanation. You can't take a 23-year-old kid and have him make some religious claims and have it succeed without God being behind it. It just doesn't make any sense. His hand is in the work. His hand is in the work. In addition, the concepts that are being described as part of the restored gospel. Instead of God being a far-off, uh, unknowable, ununderstandable being, it resonates with people that God is a close, personal Father who looks like us, except that he is, of course, uh, divine and glorious. And the other concepts as well, that scriptures can be uh, enlarged and, and become uh, added to by continuing revelation. And the whole idea of continuing revelation is something that very much uh, resonates with, with people. Because you'll look in vain to find something in the New Testament that says, there shall be no other prophets and apostles, there shall never again be additional revelation of Scripture. You, you just don't find it. As a matter of fact, in 
the book of Revelation, you find references to two future prophets at least and to additional scriptures that, that might come about. Uh, and and a, a fascinating anecdote here, a, a scholar and, and a good friend of mine, Matthew Roper, put together a wonderful article on this subject of why would the Latter-day Saint message succeed and what is the impact on it of critics and of documents, uh, books, pamphlets that are against the LDS church. And what he did was he wrote down a, a chronology of every anti-Mormon book or pamphlet or track that has ever been produced, of, of which he was aware, from the and earliest and a, days. And a timetable. He did a timetable along with it, right? That's right, in chronological order. And then along with that, he put together a chronological chart of the membership of the church, how many people were members of the church. And he actually found a correlation that the more anti-Mormon literature that's published, the more people join the church. <laughs> and he was, he was, he kind of smiled and, and thought that was a great thing, but it's also to a certain extent a little bit uh, um, counterintuitive. But I guess the explanation would be that when people see Latter-day Saints, that they're good, genuine people, and find out that they're not the horrible people that are depicted, for example, in the Book of Mormon Broadway show, or in some of the horrendous uh, anti-Mormon tracks and books that are out there, you find out that Latter-day Saints are good people, and, and you're interested in finding out more. I, I guess it fits in with the theory that any publicity is good publicity. <laughs> <laughs> That's what P.T. Uh, Barnum said, so, and he's probably correct. Well, uh, we've come to the end of our uh, segment here today on Latter-day Radio. We'll hope you stay tuned and listen to what else we have for you on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. This podcast has been produced by Latter-day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com for more information.